Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. Happy Easter. It is good to be together. I had a, you didn't sound very happy at all there. Can I just try this again? You're, it's, it, don't be pitiful on Easter. Come on. Happy Easter. That's a lot better. A lot better. I was talking to a friend uh, last night. He said, uh, he goes, are you dreading doing eight services this weekend? And I said, uh, after last year, I will never again take for granted our ability to gather together. And so I love it. So I would do 15. If you guys will show up, I'll show up. And uh, I love it. So it's good to see you. It's good to see some of you I haven't seen in a while. And it's great to, to be together this weekend and to celebrate together. Uh, this Easter, uh, we're going to talk about the resurrection. And I'm, as I'm doing that, I'm also going to open up a new series for us that we're calling So Close, the things that get between us and God. And we're going to hang out in that series for the next few weeks. And uh, we're gonna be talking about our fears and our doubts, our questions and our insecurities, our pain, things like that, that allow us to get close to God, but kind of keep us from God. We're kind of right there, right? There's a fine line that that we often walk in life. It happens all the time. Like there's a fine line uh, between victory and defeat. Uh, There's a fine line between a hilarious story and a tragic story, right? And those fine lines are around us all the time. And depending on what side of that line we land on uh, can be a a life-altering thing for us as we go through life and as we go through faith. And so sometimes these really, really fine lines happen in our relationship with God. And there are questions or there are doubts or there are hesitations in the back of our mind. And they'll keep us from, sometimes from salvation, and then sometimes from the life and the calling that, that God has on us, and we, we walk these things. I remember when I was in high school, my dad came to me one day, and he said, I, said, I want you to go pick up the yard. It was like springtime. He's like, go get the, the twigs and the branches, stuff like that that comes down. We didn't have, we had like an acre of land. We didn't have like a massive yard, but big enough that he had to pick it up a little bit. So he said, go pick up the yard. And he said, uh, take it back to the burn pile, burn everything. And then when you're done, you can, you can kind of go do what you want, which was important to me because the next day was my senior prom. And so I, I wanted to go out with my buddies. We were going to get our, our tuxedos. This is the 80s, so like our cummerbunds and our penny loafers and stuff like that, you know. So we were going to uh, do all that. And so I went out and I picked up the yard and, and uh, wound up kind of getting this pretty big pile of sticks and stuff. And dad wanted it burned, and so I went and I got a book of matches. Most kids don't even know what this is, but if you imagine uh, paper that's soggy and trying to start a fire with it, that's a book of matches. And so I had this book of matches, and I got some newspaper, and I was trying to get this going. It was kind of a breezy day, and it would blow these matches out, and I wasn't having any luck. So I thought to myself, you know what I need? I, I was 16, so this was what I thought. I need an accelerant. That's how a 16-year-old thinks. So I was like, I need an accelerant uh, to get this thing going. And I thought, what catches fire easily, like with a spark, but would burn these, these things up? And so the right answer is gasoline. And so I was like, I'll get some gasoline. So I went in the garage, and I got some gasoline. And I was going to go out with the gas can and, like, shake it onto the, the fire, but then I was like, that's, that's ridiculous, that's irresponsible, so I'm not going to do that. So what I did instead was I filled up a coffee can. My dad would keep these like metal coffee cans and put stuff in it, and so I filled up like a small one, 
And I thought, I'm not sure that's enough accelerant. I need more. So I got a big coffee can and I filled it to the brim because that's what the commercial said to do. And so I filled it to the brim and I was like, I think I have enough gasoline now. So I, I walked out to the backyard and I slowly poured it over all the twigs, plenty of gasoline so that it was, you know, pooling at the bottom of the fire pit. And I, I thought that ought to do it. And then I, try, I was trying to like light a match and throw it but the wind kept blowing it out. So I thought to myself, you know what I should do? I should cover the flame with my body. And if I cover the flame with my body, the wind won't get it. And so I got down really, really low and I covered the flame with my body and I lit one and that one worked. And when I lit it, the fumes of that gasoline caught and just went woof like that. And the next thing I thought was, I'm flying. That's what I thought. I was like, I'm flying. How about this? This is what flying feels like. And it threw me, it threw me probably 20 feet and I landed on the ground, knocked the wind out of me. I was like, Ugh. and so I'm there and I look up and it worked and it, the, the twigs were on fire. It was a miracle. And so I was real happy about that. So I got up and I like finished burning the, the twigs and, 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 you know, put everything on there, kind of did my chore that I was asked to do. And I went into the house then to, to take a shower and to go hang out with my friends. And when my mother saw me, she went <gasps> like that. Now, here's a hint for you kids. When your mom goes <gasps> like that, something has probably happened to your face. That, that's, that's a general mother reaction. And what had happened was that fireball had burned off my eyebrows and my eyelashes and like the front half of my, <laughs> I, I look like a 35 year old balding male kind of a thing, you know, it had flash burned my face. It was terrible. I went to pick up my prom date the next day and uh, I met her father. He's like, oh, and I was like, she's like, are, are you, how old are you? <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I'm 16. I just, I did some hard time, you know, kind of thing, right? Now that's a, it's a funny story. But there's a fine line. It's only funny because it's not tragic, right? I, I could have, been, the headline could have been teenager is burned in backyard, you know? All the things that could have happened, it's this really, really fine line and it kind of depends on what side of that line you land on, how you would interpret the events around you. And sometimes that's circumstantial or as Christ followers, we would say providential, and other times, those are choices that we would make and how we would interact with something. I want to show you in the resurrection account uh, a, a so close moment, right? That fine line moment, that, that so close where people are like right there and how they process and where they land on that fine line is the thing that makes all the difference in their faith and in their lives, right? So grab your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 27. It's page 811 and the Bibles that are in the chairs there. And this is of course on the app also. And uh, I, want, I wanna show you something here. So Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 28, where we're landing right now in the Easter story is the crucifixion 
is almost over and the resurrection has not begun yet, right? So Jesus has been crucified. He's been falsely tried before Pilate. He's been handed over to the Romans. He's been beaten. The crown of thorns has been put on his head. He's been spat upon. He's been mocked. He has carried the cross as far as he could carry it to Golgotha. He arrived there. He's been nailed to the cross, his hands, his feet. He's been hung up. He's interacted with the thieves at this point. He's talked to John, said, John, take care of my mom for me. He's asked his father to forgive those who crucified him because they didn't know what they were doing. And then he has cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he has breathed his last. So he has bled out. They have pierced his side. Blood and water flowed. And now Jesus' body is there on the cross. His spirit has left his body, but his physical body is still hanging there. And so at the end of Matthew chapter 27, the Bible says that a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came and talked to Pilate. And he went to Pilate and said, hey, Pilate, can I have Jesus' body I want to bury his body, and Pilate, the governor, uh, allowed that to happen. So they took Jesus' body down. They wrapped his body in burial cloth, kind of like a mummy you would a little bit is how we would think of it, but they wrapped him up in that. And then they took him to Joseph's tomb. Joseph had a tomb crafted for his family. And this is what a rich man would do in the ancient world, right? They would have a tomb carved into a mountainside. They would take a body in the ancient world, there was no embalming, and they would wrap that body, they would pack the body with spices, they would put that body in that empty tomb, and then there was a stone that they would roll in front of that tomb. That stone was usually four to six feet high, and it was usually 18 to 24 inches thick. It set in a stone kind of track, and they would roll that up. That track had a little bit of a grade to it. They would roll it up, and then they would chalk it. They would put the body in there, and then they would pull that chalk, and they would roll that stone down. It was heavy, about two tons, so that it would seal against the entrance of that tomb. They would then let the body decompose, and when someone else from the family died, they would push that stone back up. They would take the first body, they would actually take the bones and put it in a burial box, and they would put that over in the corner, and then they would put another body in, and generation upon generation, that was the family mausoleum or the family uh, tomb. And so Joseph had one of those, It had never been used. There were no bones in it. There was not another body in it. And Jesus was the first to go into that. And they put him in there. The chief priests and the Pharisees, when all this happened, got nervous because Jesus had claimed that he was gonna raise again from the dead. And so what they did is they went to Pilate themselves in verse 62. The next day, one of the the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, We remember while he was still alive that the deceiver said after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate was like, fine, take a guard, go make the tomb as secure as you know how. 
Then they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. So what they would have done is they would have gone and they would have mixed clay and wax and they would have put a seal kind of against the face of the, the grave, the, the mountain, and then they would have put a ribbon in it and then they would have struck that ribbon over the edge of the stone and they would have put another clump of that there and then they would have sealed both of those with the Roman seal. And that's a very big deal. Uh, that Roman seal was a thing of power in the ancient world. So if you broke a Roman seal without permission, it was a capital offense. And if you were a Roman soldier that was put there to guard that seal, if it was broken while you were on watch, you would be executed for it. It's a very big deal, that Roman seal. And then Pilate said, do that, and then set a guard. And so this guard, this was not like a guy standing there with like a plastic shield and Birkenstocks on. Uh, this was a, a military guard. It would have been uh, a minimum of four guys. That was a guard. So four guys that were there, and they were on guard. The Romans would rotate those guards every six to eight hours, and they would do that around the clock so there was always an alert guard. And the guard wasn't really there to guard the body of Jesus. They were there to guard that seal because you don't mess with that, that seal. And so that's the situation. You got about four guys that are there, and they're guarding the Roman seal, and that's their job. And these guards were guys who were so close, so close, right, to what they wanted and what they needed and what they had hoped for. I got to thinking about these guards, and so I got curious about it, started researching it. These were Roman soldiers. These were the grunts. These were not officers. Uh, these were not royalty that was in the military. These were the grunts. These were the guys who did the fighting and did the digging and did the lifting, and they were professional military men. It, when you think about their lives, their lives are very, very fascinating. So in the Roman army, if you enlisted in the Roman army, you enlisted for a 25-year run, a 25-year enlistment. And the reason that you would do that is twofold. Uh, one, you would do that in order to break the cycles of poverty in your family. The other reason that you would do that is to work off your own indentured servitude. So the, the promise of the Roman government was, you give us 25 years of your life, and we'll give you land. So some of these guys were like captured and they're like, you can join the army or you can be a slave. They're like, I'm gonna join the army. And at the end of their 25 years, they would get freedom and land. And then other guys would be like, I have no place in life. In the ancient world, if you didn't own land, you had no opportunity for advancement, period. And so they would look and say, my grandfather was a, was a slave, my father was a slave, I'm gonna be one, I'm joining the army. And if I can make it through these 25 years, I will be given land and I will break all these cycles in, in my family. Now when you join the Roman army, these are not the officers, these are the, the guys, right? These are the grunts. When you join the Roman army, that meant that your life was consumed by the Roman army. A Roman soldier at this time in history was almost constantly deployed. So most of these guys weren't married. Most of them didn't have families. They were always 
deployed. In fact, that's what these guys would have been. These guys were in Jerusalem because the Romans had conquered Jerusalem. And so they're either an occupying force there in Jerusalem or the Roman army would increase its presence at the time of the Passover. So think about like when we have a big event, the police will increase their presence to keep us safe. The Roman army would do this, but not really to keep the people safe, to keep them under control. Because this area of the world especially was known for rebellions, right? So that's why these guys were there. If you were in for 25 years, you most assuredly saw combat and probably saw it consistently. Because the Roman government was expanding and then they're an occupying force, there's all these rebellions, right? So you're seeing that. And this is ancient combat. So this is swords, knives, hand-to-hand, spear stuff, right? And that's what you have seen and that's what you have lived through and these guys are keeping guard. And they're normal guys, right? And they're talking about their lives. They have hopes and they have dreams. Man, if I get, when I get out of the army, when I get out of the army, where are you gonna get your farm? Oh, I'm gonna get my farm here. What are you gonna grow? Oh, I'm gonna grow this. You know, who are you gonna marry? I met this girl one time way over wherever. Maybe she's still alive and still unmarried. And but I'm gonna get married. We're gonna have kids and I'm gonna make a better life for my family, right? When we, when we get out of the army. They had hopes and they had dreams. They had pain. You're in combat in the ancient world, you're gonna get hurt, right? And so they had pain, they don't have modern medicine. So this guy, he, he got hit with an arrow or he got hit with a knife and it nicked his rotator cuff and that nerve damage has bothered him the rest of his life. He's got physical pain. And then he's got PTSD because you watch guys not, not clean wounds, like guys lose limbs, guys lose heads, guys bleed out, guys who got nicked and died of gangrene. That, that has been your life. And some of those are your friends or your brothers and that is your story, right? And you're sitting here talking about all of that just being normal, complaining about your officers, how much you hate this assignment, and you're on guard. You're stuck doing that because somebody put that stupid seal up and we have to make sure it doesn't get broken, right? Now in the middle of all this, God interacts with these guys and Jesus' power is on display and these incredible supernatural ways and it causes them to be so close to what they long for. It's fascinating how their story plays out. So chapter 28, the Bible says this, after the Sabbath at dawn, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they go and they go to look at the tomb. This is a normal part of their preparing and dealing with a a dead body. And so they go to do that. Something incredible happens. The Bible says this, at that time there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone, set on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. So these guys are hanging out. These two ladies show up, Mary and Mary show up. The earthquake hits, the angel shows up, 
looks like a bolt of lightning. They may or may not have seen the tomb, uh, the, the stone roll back because they were so freaked out, they passed out. And they're laying there. As they're laying there, passed out and freaked out, the angel interacts with Mary and Mary because apparently they have little bit more backbone than these guards do. And so the angel, verse five, said to the women, don't be afraid for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you, I've delivered my message. Verse eight, so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. They ran to tell the disciples and suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him and they clasped his feet and they worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there you will see me. So the guards pass out. The ladies, Mary and Mary, they talk to the angels. They, they run off to tell the disciples. They bump into Jesus. Jesus, it makes me laugh, he's super chill. He's like, what's up? <laughs> what's up? Greetings, <laughs> right? And they're like, ah! And so they're, they're freaked out a little bit. They recognize him, and they recognize he is risen from the dead because they saw the crucifixion and they handled his mangled body. They're very aware of what they're doing right now. So they run to him and they grab hold of him, and they begin to worship him and he says, hey, go tell the disciples that I'm on my way to, to meet them. So they take off to go tell the disciples. And as they take off, the guards come too. So this is how the Bible says that while the women were on their way, some of the guards went to the city, reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. So the guards wake up. And when they wake up, they would have looked at each other and they would have been like, did did you, did what happen, happen? Like, did you feel an earthquake? Yeah, I felt an earthquake. Did you see a bolt of lightning? Yeah. Was it an angel? I think so. Like, something happened. Did you pass out? Well, no, I just kind of, you know, just a little bit, but not a lot, right? So they're going, they're back and forth with it. They would have woken up. The first thing they would have done as Roman military is they would have looked at that seal, is that seal broken? And they would have seen the stone rolled away, right? They then would have got up and they would have gone and looked in the tomb. Is the body there? And the Bible says that when, when, when uh, what was left in the tomb were the burial clothes and the linen, the cloth that covered Jesus' face was folded and laid to the side. And so they see the, the clothes and they see the cloth laid to the side, they don't see the body. And so they go and they have to report this to the guys who sent them there, the chief priests and the Pharisees. So they go and they make the report to the chief priests and the Pharisees. What happened? Well, there was an earthquake. What happened next? Well, it was like a bolt of lightning and then there was a guy standing there. What, hap is, what about the seal? Seal's broken, seal's broken, bro. Like it's broken. Uh, what, what, did, what about the body? It's gone. Like it's gone. Like the clothes are there, but the body's not there. It's been, it, it's disappeared, right? 
What the chief priests and the Pharisees then do is fascinating. Verse 12, when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan. So they go and they make a plan. This is what we're going to do about this. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, you're to say his disciples came during the night and stole them away while we were, while, while we were asleep. If the report goes to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the chief priests and the Pharisees come to the guards and they're like, come here guys, listen. Here's the plan. This is what we're going with. All right, what are we going with? This is what we're going with. What is it? All right, this is what you're to say. You're to say that the disciples stole the body. The disciples. Yeah, the disciples. They stole the body. The disciples. The disciples who were too afraid to go to the crucifixion, all of them except John. Uh, the disciples like Peter who denied Jesus three times and then cussed a little girl out. Uh, the disciples who are right now hiding in the upper room because they're terrified. Those disciples, right. They came and stole the body while you were sleeping, while we were sleeping, right. So those disciples came and they rolled a two-ton stone uphill, and we slept through it. Right. And then they went into the tomb while we were sleeping, and they didn't just take everything, they unwrapped the body, and we slept through it. Right. So they unwrapped the body, and they left the grave clothes there, right? That's the plan. And now fishermen are running around Jerusalem in which the most powerful army in the world has an increased presence because of the holiday and because of the unrest. But they're running around the Jerusalem unnoticed with a three-day-old decomposing dead body. And we slept through it. Right, that last part, that last part's gonna be hard. If you get in trouble with the governor, we'll cover for you. It's ridiculous. It's completely ludicrous. Ready? And they know it. They know it. They know that there was an earthquake. They didn't hear about it, they were there. They know an angel showed up. They told them everything. They know you're going you're gonna to spin a dead body out of burial clothes and combat-hardened veterans of the Roman army are going to sleep through it? It's ridiculous. And they know that that grave was empty. And they know that this is a lie, and they know it's not even a good one. And God had supernaturally interacted with them. They saw an angel. You seen an angel? You have like video it, like a call me. I want to see one. They saw it all. And the next verse, to me, is one of the most tragic verses in the whole Bible. With all of this, 
This is what the Bible says. So the soldiers took the money. They took the money and they did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. They took the money. They saw an angel. That body just kind of like disappeared. This lie is ludicrous. And we know we didn't fall asleep. And they took the money. You know what these guys hoped down deep? Because they're normal people like you and me. They hoped Jesus was God. Well, how do you know that, Jeff? Because they had dreams. They wanted a future. What's the chances of living into your 40s in the ancient world, period? Let alone in almost a nonstop pattern of combat. See, they wanted a future. And the idea that there could be a God who could defeat death, that we could follow, and he would go and prepare a place for us and give us a future, they want that to be true. They want healing. You ever had nerve damage? You ever need a root canal? The pain, and Jesus was known as a healer. He healed all kinds of people. The idea, because there's no modern medicine, the idea that there's a God and he could heal me of this wound. How appealing that would be to be free of pain. to be free of my torment, my PTSD. The idea that there could be a God whose love is so perfect that he could cast out my nightmares, my fear, and heal me. Everybody wants that to be true. And that God interacted with me. I saw an angel. I saw a stone rolled away. I saw empty grave clothes. And they took the money. Now I was thinking about these guys. And in my arrogant self-righteousness, I thought, dummies, why would you, why would you make that decision? <laughs> if I was there, I'd probably take the money. 
Because this is the way they would have thought. They would think like you and I think. The money, if I take the money, I can numb my pain and I don't have to trust anybody to heal it. If I take the money, I can be the master of my own destiny in theory and I don't have to follow anybody. If I take the money, I can pursue my dreams and I don't have to surrender them to God's definition and direction. And their lives were changed that day because they stood in front of an empty tomb. But they weren't changed because they embraced the God who by his own authority raised himself from the dead. They were changed because as that God reached out to them and made sense to them, they took the money. You know why I love Easter? One of the reasons why I love Easter, there's a whole bunch, but one of the reasons I love Easter it's because Easter is one of those things you can't get away from, right? You just can't get away from it. Jesus either rose again from the dead or he didn't. There, there's like no play in that. You can't kind of predict you'll raise again from the dead and like not. Like th there's evidence. Like th you're either there or you're not there. There's a body or there's not a body. Like there's just no way around it. So Easter is one of those sayings in scripture where like Jesus either did what he said he was gonna do or he didn't do it at all. It's either absolutely true or completely uh, lunacy. There's just no way around it. And one of the things I love about Easter, one of the reasons I'm grateful that we celebrate Easter is because what Easter does every year is it makes us stare into that empty tomb. it puts us in the exact same positions that those four guards were in. And you can't deny it. In fact, it fascinates me, even the Pharisees and the chief priests didn't deny it. They, they came up with a lie to cover for the empty tomb, but they never denied that the tomb was empty. You just can't get away from it. And at Easter, we're staring again, see, the stone is rolled away. There's 500 eyewitnesses that saw Jesus after he rose again from the dead. The grave clothes are laying there and there's no three-day-old decomposing unembalmed body randomly running around Jerusalem. How would you possibly hide that? And I'm an ordinary guy and you are too. And every time we stare at the empty tomb, the temptation that the guard struggled with is ours. Because we want Jesus to be raised again. You want that. I want to know there's life after death. I want to know that. I need to know that there's somebody bigger than me because I would have solved my own problems a long time ago. 
So I need to know that there's somebody I can cry out to. I need to know that my heart can be healed, that my fears can be relieved. I want there to be a resurrected God. And if there is one, then he is God, which means I am not. And his calling, his authority, his definition, and his direction is something that must be real in my life. I have to run to him, clasp hold of him, and worship him like Mary and Mary did. Or I could take the money. have all this experience with God and walk away from it. Guys, how many times has God reached out to you? How many times have you heard this story? I bet you, you got up this morning, you put on your new shirt, you came to church, and I bet your thought was this, I wonder how Jeff is gonna make this different. I've heard his story so many times. I hope he's funny. We know he's sexy, but I hope he's funny. <laughs> right? Because we've heard it. Some of us have grown up with it. We've heard it so much we're numb to it. How many so close moments of yeah. How many times you said, "Yeah, we almost had that car." Oh my gosh, we almost died. How many times has God preserved your life? Just the fact that we would gather. You know what the church is growing the fastest on planet Earth right now? Iran. What do you think it's like for them to gather? Just the fact that we would do this is an act of God's mercy and grace. It's your version of the angel and the earthquake and it's so clear and so in front of you and it's your story, it's not somebody else's story, it's what God has done for you and you again are looking into that empty grave and you gotta decide. And they took the money. God loves you. He's not out to get you. He would have got you a thousand times. Because there's a fine line between a tragic story and a funny one. God loves you. He's not out to get you. Half the planet doesn't know the name of Jesus. And his name has become a habit or a ritual. God loves you. He's not out to get you. He laid his life down. He suffered. He died. And that tomb is empty. It's a fine line. Because we can be so close 
But the line between knowledge and faith, the line between religion and love, the line between conformity and surrender, the line between a head full of information and a heart that has received salvation. And at the empty tomb, your life's changed. But the decisions we make, let's see. And those guys that Jesus had just given his life for, those guys who had hopes and dreams and pain and trauma, they were right there. So close, so close. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for loving us. It's inescapable, the evidence of that. And you know our hearts, you know our temptations, you know our fears, you know our doubts, you know our questions, you know our pain, you know our insecurities. And, and before we ever heard of you or knew of you or thought about responding to you, you loved us and gave your life. And you're calling again. You're showing up at the empty tomb. And in your kindness, you're beckoning us to faith, to surrender, to salvation, to joy, to calling, to purpose, to all of it. So God, in these still moments would you press into our hearts press past our apathy and past our callousness and our familiarity press into the deep recesses assure us of your love assure us of your deity and God once again draw us. <laughs> Thank you that that tomb is empty, God, that you're alive and well. And would you express your power and your love to us in a fresh way, even now.